Well over a year ago, when we were reporting a story for the mail about Deliveroo riders and Uber riders and the whole economy of food apps in Manchester, we came across a really interesting man called Ahmed who came from Sudan, got asylum in the UK and has been rebuilding his life in Manchester. As the country discusses and debates the asylum policy of the government and the failed flight to Rwanda, we thought we would dedicate this episode to Ahmed's story and a special audio recording we made of that piece this time last year. This is the Manchester Wheatley from the Mill. Welcome to this episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. I'm in the office this time instead of in the studio. Daryl is away on holiday and therefore I am sitting here with Jack Dalhanty, the Mill staff writer. Hello, Jack. Hi, Josh. Are you okay? I am okay. Today's episode we are going to dedicate to Ahmed's story, which was a very popular long read we did on the Mill quite a while ago now, more than a year ago. We actually had an audio reading of it done by um, a talented guy called Tom Marshall. And he created this lovely reading, which we put out to our members a year ago, but we're now going to put it out on the podcast today because it's so topical. And I think Ahmed's story is just one of those kind of, every couple of months you bring in one of these stories that really like sheds light on a new sort of topic. And, and I think, I think it, it's one of those. We're also going to be talking about mental health, mental health provision in Greater Manchester and, and a service that seems to be really under strain, particularly the community service. Plus, we'll be talking about the Hume Hippodrome, um, the anniversary of the IRA bombing in Manchester in 1996 and a couple of other things. Jack, tell us what you reported this week on the mill about mental health provision in Manchester. Essentially, What we've come to understand is that community mental health services in Greater Manchester are under intense strain. We have a situation where patient caseloads are outstripping the number of staff. The resources really just aren't there to keep these staff levels high enough to deal with the number of patients that we have. And what specifically... Um, did you discover when you were reporting this? Your story gave the impression that caseloads were running way ahead of staffing, which suggests that the the right funding isn't being allocated to the city region. Yeah, well, we never ended up getting through to the commissioners of of Greater Manchester Mental Health, but we do have an understanding that it was done on a per-head basis a few years ago before intense population changes. So the situation that we're in now where staff will have double the recommended number of patients that they should have, they're not able to properly monitor antipsychotic medication. And this is in the context of the community. So it's not like in a hospital ward, it's people who need at-home care and should be regularly checked in on. So this includes really serious mental health issues like psychosis and schizophrenia and what we're talking about is services that are supposed to um, look after people in the community and also into early intervention services that are supposed to help you know people not end up in hospital they don't seem to get the kind of funding and the kind of staffing they need in this city basically essentially these are people who have long-term mental illnesses so as you say like schizophrenia and psychosis The problem really is that the lack of resource stops the um, medical teams from doing the sort of preventative work that would stop us from getting in this situation in the first place. So what you end up with is 
more patients who haven't had the sort of talking therapy and preventative work required to stop them from needing long-term care now get an inadequate long-term care. We've heard some really quite shocking what staff themselves describe as failures where people are having multiple mental health act assessments finding that they need to be detained but there's just not a bed for them because essentially what this causes is the overloaded community teams cause backlogs in inpatient wards and it kind of reverberates backwards and it's just a generally difficult situation and an important one to report really. We went to the um, Greater Manchester Mental Health Trust, who, who oversee a large part of Greater Manchester, not all of it, and they did not get back to us with the response. So if they do respond, we'll have that on the newsletter soon. Another story you've been looking at, very different topic area, is the Hume Hippodrome, which is like a building that I've had, I swear, dozens of emails about from members over the past couple of years. We've never, I don't think we've ever really covered it. But you actually went down there to meet one of the activists who's trying to save it. What's going on? Yeah, so I met two of the guys who were kind of the directors of the Save Hume Hippodrome. Now it's actually Save Hume Hippodrome Limited. It's become a limited company because they want to actually take over the building, redevelop it. At the moment, the Hume Hippodrome, which has been open since 1901, well, not open, but has been there since 1901, is essentially just a big dilapidated very storied building it started what, what out, was it like inside well i mean it's got some i think it's is it called like rococo plastering or something like that so it's actually grade two listed but not for the outside of the building specifically for the inside because it's so intricate and beautiful um but when it first opened it was a real community theater it had like pantos i think they did love on the dole there a lot of the early coronation street actors did shows there like one-man shows and comedy shows and it has a really really rich history over time that kind of it just went downhill it became dilapidated it went through different hands i think it was in 2003 it was bought by gilbert dayer ministries which was a north african ministry that was later found to be well the archbishop gilbert dayer was found guilty of child trafficking he was extradited and then it took him a while to actually get taken out of the country and in 2001, it came under the ownership of another man called Charles Gassel. And it was quite an interesting one. Charles had been disqualified from being a company director until 2025. But he bought this building and immediately sold it to another company called HMM20 or something like that with this sole director. And as soon as he, sell, he sold it to that company, he then put it up to auction and it caused this huge activist drive to try and stop him from being able to save the auction I mean sell it at auction and they actually did prevent the sale of the building and now they've mounted this campaign to buy it from him at above market value, redevelop it and then reopen it as it originally was as a kind of community theatre for local people. So these people, including some mill readers and including I think Tony Wilson's son Ollie, they are trying to stop it from being turned into flats, basically, or being redeveloped. But do you have a sense of why they're so sort of emotionally connected to it? Why do they care about it so much? It's interesting because the two people who I met, who are Tony Baldwinson and Mike Bath, are both out of town. So they're not, they weren't born in Manchester. They came here in like the 70s. Um, Tony worked for the council. Mike has been a sort of long-term project manager. He worked at like the co-op and stuff. And they're both real like, you know, those people who, be, who come to Manchester and just become like Manchester zealots. Like they're absolutely like, this is the best place ever and we should do everything to make sure it stays the same. They're basically like that. I think it's quite interesting when I was speaking to them, I did say it to them that like, 
this Charles guy is absolutely convinced that he can make millions off this land if he can demolish the building. And his kind of what they would describe as greed only feeds their ambition to not have him do it. So they're almost in like this closed loop system of just like forcing each other further and further and further to escalate and escalate and escalate. So it's reached the point now where the council have served Gasol A section 215. It's under the the fact that the building's listed. He has to basically renovate the dilapidated bits at the front of the building and all that sort of thing. And he's now appealed that. And that's been in abeyance since. So they're waiting for that to be cleared, that sort of legal action to be cleared so that they can then hopefully buy the building from him. And I think uh, Tony just emailed me and the hearing will be in early July. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that when that comes back, because that'll be kind of the deciding moment of what they can do with it. I love that um, someone who came here in the 70s is still an out-of-towner to you, <laughs> to a native like you. God, God knows what, I, what people think of me. A few, a few quicker hit stories we want to cover. There's a story this morning about civil servant jobs coming to Manchester. There's obviously been this move of government moving jobs out of London, probably not very fast and not very wholesale. But you do have the Department of um, Culture, Media and Sport. You have some of them here. Um, you've got aspects of the government like GCHQ. There's a hub here. I'm probably forgetting a couple of obvious government departments. But um, tell us what this latest news is. Yeah, so you're right. At the minute, we have around 700 civil servants working in Manchester, and they work at Piccadilly Gate, which is near the current Piccadilly station. That building will be demolished to make way for the eventual HS2 station, whichever form that takes. And they'll be moving to a new building on First Street called the First Street Hub, and a further 1,800 civil servant jobs will move there. So there'll be a total of about 2,500. And the department's moving roles will be the Cabinet Office, Department of Digital Media, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, Department of Education. And as you say, it is part of this broader move. I think the term that the government have put on it is the Places for Growth programme, about kind of dispersing influence and government jobs and stuff like that. Okay. Um, another story that we are obviously taking an interest in because we published this big weekend read by Michael Unger, former editor of the MEN. It was about the IRA bomb and the day of the IRA bomb and his memories. That was a really popular mill piece. Today, as we record, um, is the anniversary. It's the 26th anniversary of the IRA bomb. And it's interesting because our office is in the Royal Exchange Building, which was extremely badly hit. So many things in Manchester, so many stories you touch in Manchester seem to come back to the IRA bomb in some way. Like when you're talking about the economic rejuvenation of Manchester, so much of it seems to link back to the IRA bomb. When I wrote about Sir Richard Lee's, the defining moment of his entire leadership of the city was the IRA bomb and the decisions they made about how to redevelop the city centre. Even the sort of Royal Exchange story we did recently, you know, it's like they've just signed a new lease because they had 25 years of, of free rent, I believe, after the bomb. It's a huge kind of moment in, in, in Manchester history and it's, it's being commemorated. How old were you when... when, when, when I, I was minus two years old. <laughs> Brilliant. Was it a thing that... When did you become aware of it, I guess? Well, I wouldn't say I was that young, um, I probably have been around 10 getting into high school where, I don't know, I guess it's not really something anyone spoke to me about. It wasn't like from a very early age, it was like this happened once. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, that happened once. Which kind of, I guess, um, speaks to the general bounce back of the city at the time that people don't really remember. I mean, they remember it as something that was deeply shocking because it precipitated so much development and it precipitated what Manchester is now 
I don't feel like people see it as a deep, shocking tragedy. It was just like yeah. it happened and it spurred forward all of this new development. Yeah, I suppose because because no one died, that changes the tone. But also, I think what I really took from Mike's piece was that the previous IRA bombs in the city had kind of built up a bit of a resistance to this kind of thing. And I think when, when you hear about the IRA bombing campaign and just how many different incidents there were in the UK, it's just, yeah, it was, I found Mike's piece such an interesting sort of window into just such a different world that I don't know that well because I was born in ACA and that you certainly don't know <laughs> I was in the very well. But, um, but that people of, of Mike's age and, 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 and that kind of generation, it was just a huge part of their lives, a huge part of Manchester as well. Earlier this week, there was the spectacle of the government's first flight to Rwanda, which was attempting to take people who had come to the UK to claim asylum to Rwanda as part of this new policy. The point of which seems to be to effectively put asylum seekers off from coming over the channel in boats and to encourage either to people to go to different countries or to apply to come to the UK via the quote-unquote legal asylum seeker um, process. And that has caused a huge amount of controversy, that policy. I think it's also just got people thinking about the asylum question again, because this was this has been a thing ever, ever since I've been like reading the news and following politics. Like I remember in, in the new Labour years, there was a lot of debate about our asylum system and how it, how it how it wasn't working and how much it was costing you now have a system where you have people in local government across greater manchester saying you know we in rochdale can't afford to take as many asylum seekers as, as we're being given and that sort of thing so it's an ongoing debate about the system clearly there's a big national debate about this rwanda policy i thought it'd be really interesting to hear a story that we reported on the mail a year ago. It's Ahmed's story. He came from Sudan. He's a brilliant young guy who I interviewed. He actually came onto our radar because Jack Brooks, who was our video reporter at the time, um, was out doing this Deliveroo sort of mini documentary and bumped into Ahmed. And then I spoke to him on the phone. He told me his story. Very clever guy. He talked to me about the poetry he did in Sudan. Talked about his very, very difficult journey across... North Africa into Europe, into France, going on lots and lots of different lorries until one eventually came to the UK, experiencing racism when he was in a, in a house in, in Warrington and eventually ending up in Manchester. It's a really moving story. And Tom Marshall, who's a brilliant audio producer, actually narrated the story with some sound effects and, and, and that kind of thing for the mail. We only sent it out to a very small number of people, to our, to our paying members in the early days. So we thought we'd get that tape, uh, pull it out of the archive, play it for you now, and let our increasingly um, engaged podcast listenership hear Ahmed's story for the first time. Today's Weekend Read is about Ahmed one of the thousands of delivery riders who crisscross Manchester's streets on their bikes, bringing food to our doors. For months, we've been interviewing riders to find out who they are, where they come from, and what kind of people take on this rapidly expanding job. Soon, we'll be publishing a video documenting what it's like to be a delivery rider. But today, Ahmed tells his story, and Ahmed is originally from Sudan. It's a drizzly, cold Friday night on Burton Road in Withington. It's mid-December. Ahmed said he'd been riding for the food delivery app Delivery for six months. His English is good enough to have a conversation, but not yet good enough to get a place to study at one of the city's universities. So when he isn't making food deliveries, he's learning English at a refugee charity. 
He says he likes the flexibility of working for an app that you can switch on and off when you like. Sometimes, particularly on weekends, he can make good money. But during the week, it can be tougher, and some of the restaurants treat you like less than other people, he says. The sight of delivery riders is now ubiquitous on our streets. Their number has swelled during the pandemic as the closure of restaurants has led many more of us to order food to our homes. Dressed up in the liveries of the multi-billion pound companies whose apps direct them round the city, the riders whiz past with massive box bags on their backs or hang around outside restaurants picking up food or waiting for the next job. They represent a vast and growing army of workers in our new economy. And many of them, like Ahmed, are thousands of miles from home. Ahmed is 27 and lives in Mossside, in a shared house with three other people. He pays £350 a month for his room. He grew up in a very different setting, a village in Al Jazeera in the east-central region of Sudan, between the Blue Nile and White Nile rivers. The farm where he was raised with his two sisters and one brother is about three hours' drive from the country's capital city, Khartoum. His family are farmers, and he is their eldest son, which came with lots of responsibility, he told us recently when we spoke on the phone. He's agreed to tell his story, but doesn't want to be identified with his surname. Ahmed's life at home was difficult. His mother has high blood pressure and suffers from rheumatism, and his siblings are much younger than him. One sister is 20 now, his brother is 16, and his younger sister is 6. I had lots on my shoulders, he says. When he was 19, Ahmed went to Khartoum to study engineering at university. It started out well, and he was happy. I had lots of dreams when I went to the capital, he recalls, to finish my studies and get a career and start a different kind of life. At the university, Ahmed made friends with a group of students who wrote and recited poetry. It's a popular pastime in Sudan, which has a history of oral poetry as a battle cry and assertion of identity, according to a recent report on the BBC. Ahmed had been passionate about poetry since secondary school. And when I got to university, I had the chance to meet so many people who have the same interest, he says. He joined a performance group that became well-known on campus. He says the poems they wrote weren't overtly political, but eventually the group found themselves on the government's radar. At the time, Sudan was run by a dictatorship under the leader of Omar al-Bashir. When Ahmed was at university... Bashir had recently become the first sitting head of the state to be indicted by the International Criminal Court, accused of directing a campaign of mass killing and rape against civilians in Darfur, a troubled region in western Sudan. Bashir's government was notorious for restricting political freedoms. They controlled everything, the universities, the systems, says Ahmed. After three years of his five-year course, he says the government made it impossible for him to continue the university started inexplicably failing him on his exams. He was sure it was because of his membership of the group, which marked him out as suspicious. The government was in conflict with people who were trying to speak the reality, he says. If you join their side, life would not be hard. That's when Ahmed decided to leave. He wasn't thinking about the UK yet, he said. But he knew there was no future for him in Sudan. Legally, he couldn't leave the country. So he crossed the desert to Libya and found his way to Tripoli, which was in the grip of a civil war after the botched removal of Colonel Gaddafi. He was in the Libyan capital for a few months, the period he describes as such a difficult time. Nobody cares about you, he says. You face lots of situations where you nearly die. He found a few other people in the same situation as him, and they tried to look after themselves. Eventually, they found a smuggler who promised to take them to Europe. Instead, he took them to a warehouse full of desperate souls, some of whom had been waiting years to cross the ocean. At this point, 
Ahmed and his friends fell into a nightmarish period of hard labour on a farm. You have to spend that time in his farm, from early morning to late evening, he says. Ahmed's English is adequate to narrate his story, but his limited vocabulary has the understandable effect of flattening some of his experiences. His descriptions of what he went through can sometimes come across as wild understatements. Like when he told us this time on the farm wasn't really a comfortable situation. In fact, it was three years of relentless work, trapped in a country where no one had his back and locked into an exploitive working relationship with a smuggler. You can't stop or have a break or relax, he says of the working conditions. He will send some people to watch you. And then, Ahmed's journey suddenly started moving forward again. While sleeping, he was woken by the smuggler. He came to us at night and said, Today you are going to go. You get scared, you are facing the Mediterranean. He said the smuggler was clear and unsympathetic about the risks. If you die, you die. That's the situation, he told them. Under the cover of darkness, the smuggler put them out to sea. We asked how many people were in the boat. Too many, to be honest, he said. Everyone was praying. They knew about the many migrant boats that had disappeared into the Mediterranean. Ahmed felt it was very possible they were all about to die. Eventually, after three days, a rescue ship found the boat and took them to Calabria, the region that forms the pointy toe of Italy's boot-shaped peninsula. Ahmed thought he might be able to make a new life in Italy, but quickly changed his mind. Italy was dealing with hundreds of thousands of arrivals and he didn't feel welcomed. They said Italy has lots of people now, we can't deal with you guys, he said. So he made the journey to France. There were days he had to travel on foot, and when he could, he sneaked onto trains. But even harder was finding food to eat. Sometimes when you are starving, you go to a restaurant and tell them, and they offer something to you. Sometimes you find good people who are offering you some food. It was the toughest time in my life, to be honest, he said. I learn a lot from it. At that time, France was sending a lot of migrants back to Italy. There was an agreement in place between the countries that if someone had been fingerprinted in one place, they could be returned to that state. Word spread among the recent arrivals in Paris that if they applied for asylum there, they might end up in Italy again. People began to tell Ahmed that if he applied for asylum in the UK, he would be accepted, so he made his way to Calais. He stayed in a camp nearby the town, similar to the one referred to in the media as the jungle. He was lucky to get a tent, and lucky that the camp was assisted by aid organisations who helped its inhabitants to stay alive. What he describes next is the elaborate process of getting into the UK in the back of a lorry, a game of guesswork, risk and long periods of frustration. It's the clearest explanation of this route we've heard, and it goes like this. First, you have to get yourself to where the lorries are parked. That's a walk of 13 hours from the camp, because the lorries don't park in Calais so you have to catch them further up the road. You'll likely be trying in a small group because there are lots of people trying to cross and not many likely-looking lorries. Plus, there are advantages to having multiple collaborators looking out for drivers and spotting opportunities. Then begins the task of trying to find one with an unlocked door. Usually, you get caught before you can even reach the door, so you have to run and hide. If you don't manage to, the French police arrest you and throw you in prison for a few days. That happened to Ahmed over and over again, almost 20 times, he thinks. Eventually, you get into a lorry, hide in its cargo, and wait. It's a nerve-wracking process. Not because you think you might die, says Ahmed, 
but because you have no idea where your driver is taking you. Your chances of getting into a lorry headed to the UK are relatively low. You have no idea when you get in, where each vehicle is headed, so this bit is a lottery. If you're lucky, the lorry is headed somewhere really far from Calais. One time, Ahmed found himself in Granville, Normandy, in the northwest corner of France, and it took him days to get back. In total, he thinks he got in the wrong lorry about 10 times. Then you have to do the whole thing again, knowing you could be caught outside the lorry or could be taken to the wrong place again. The sounds of a port will be the first indication that you're in a lorry headed for the UK. You'll hear the birds and the water and the inspection. Unless you're caught at this stage, you can be confident you'll be in Dover within hours. Ahmed describes this moment in his journey as one of euphoria and huge relief. I've managed to skip all over this hardness, all these difficult things, he says. I knew I would be in a safe place at the end. When the lorry arrived back in the UK, it kept driving. Then, after a few hours, it stopped, and Ahmed and his travelling companions were discovered in the back. They got out and found themselves in what he thought was a warehouse or factory. He learned that he was near Oxford. The staff in the warehouse called the police. When they arrived, Ahmed began the process of applying for asylum. That was just less than two years ago. After being detained in London for a few days and briefly taken back to Dover to be fingerprinted and interviewed, Ahmed was placed in a shared house in Warrington with three other asylum seekers, two from Sudan and one from Kurdistan. It was good for me after this, he says. I finally got some control in my life. He got £35 a week from the government but wasn't allowed to work. He bought a cheap bike on Facebook Marketplace and got his refugee status from the Home Office, the first hurdle on the way to getting permanent right to remain. In Warrington, he experienced racism from neighbours and people in the street. One of his housemates got beaten up by a group of men outside the house after getting into an argument and spent more than a week in hospital. That experience made me feel like, this is getting complicated, he says. The police started coming to check on the house from time to time to see if the men were all right. One day, he was out on his bike and three old ladies started heckling him. A black man riding a bike, did you get this in your country? They shouted at him, amongst other things that he couldn't understand. He knew they were making fun of him. I feel really uncomfortable in that situation, he says. He didn't argue and rode away. Ahmed had the sense that in the bit of Warrington where he was living, people noticed him. He sometimes struggled to understand what people were saying because English accents were still new to him. Longford, the neighbourhood where he was placed, is a working-class area where 95% of residents are white and only 1% are black. You are scared, he says. You nearly catch what people are saying. Ahmed enrolled on an English course and got a certificate from the local college. But his overwhelming impression out on the streets was that people didn't want him there. I don't think they welcome people in my situation, he says. They see a migrant or foreigner. We're not welcome. After seven months in Warrington, he thought of Manchester. He knew the name before he came to the UK. Now he learned it was a big city where you can find people from all over the world where you won't feel different. He's been in Manchester for just over a year. He now has his right to remain. He's heard the stories about his neighbourhood. But after his experiences in Sudan, Libya, Italy and France, Moss Side is nothing to worry about. I don't get in conflict with people, he says. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't get myself in trouble. He's found Manchester's Sudanese community and was going to the mosque before the pandemic hit. 
I've got many friends from all over the world, he says. I'm living like, feeling like I'm happy. Early afternoon, at about 4.30, he turns on the delivery app and starts making deliveries until about 10.30 at night. His earnings over a week range from £200 to £400, he says. But what you make is unpredictable because it depends so much on which jobs you're able to pick up. Sometimes you make not enough and then you make more than you predict, he says. He worries about what is going on in Sudan and about his family. He speaks to them two or three times a week via a payphone. The country's dictator Bashir was deposed in a military coup in 2019 and the country is in a highly uncertain transition period. Ahmed's main aim is to resume his university studies and become an engineer, picking up the dream he had when he left his village for Khartoum. He's already applied for foundation year courses at MMU and the universities of Manchester, Salford and Liverpool. They've told him the only thing he needs to improve is his English, which he's working hard on at the moment. I am learning now, which is the most important thing for me, he says. Every day I am trying to learn something new so I can add some value to the community. He's starting to write again. He'd stopped since leaving Sudan. I am trying to write and get into the poetry again, he says, and maybe in future write some poetry in English. I am really thankful now. That was Ahmed's story, read by Tom Marshall and originally reported by me and Jack Brooks for The Mail just over a year ago. Now, Jack, me and you have spent... It's mostly me and you in the office this week because Danny's off and Sophie's off. But earlier we had quite a long meeting about this homelessness story that we've been working on for ages. It's about homelessness, it's about what kind of housing crisis Manchester has, if it does have a housing crisis. It's about why there are thousands of people living in temporary accommodation. So that's clearly something we've got, we've got ticking along. We've, got, we've had some excellent new leads and sources in the past couple of weeks. That's one thing we're, we're working on. What else is going on in the newsroom at the moment? Honestly, it feels like it is the only thing I'm working on at the minute. Between various sort of reports, going out speaking to new people, chasing up new interviewees and also trying to sort of like mind crush all the information into some sort of direction or we might actually be able to write the piece um there's very little really taking up my time apart from that although i have been writing a, a piece about 84 youth which is and I've, again on that one i've been working on it for a few months who are a, a youth organization in moss side who work with victims of violent crime and i think that would be a really interesting story to sort of shed light on a segment of the youth violence story that we don't really hear about that much yeah that'll be a really good one when it comes out the homelessness around will eventually see the light of day and we'll do a special podcast on it now looking ahead to the weekend i know you're very excited about manchester day i was going to recommend it actually to our listeners but i don't really know what it is what is it Uh, it's just like a big parade i think have you been to it before no okay well it's a big parade (laughs) Um, where can people go to... The parade starts, I think, it's at 1pm from Beetham Tower. There'll be various sort of floats and art pieces. It goes up to the cathedral, kind of up and around, essentially, back around the Arndale and back towards the... back down Deansgate. Um, so it's very much a, a family day thing, I think. Perfect. Well, I might be there. You might be there. Harry might be there. You also have another recommendation, do you? Yes, I was going to recommend uh, TEDx University of Salford. 
TED Talk, so classically interesting. Uh, and this one, which is in, obviously in collaboration with the University of Salford, uh, it's University of Salford faculty staff giving talks about their areas of expertise all around the theme of rejuvenation. So there's some really interesting ones, like I think James McVeigh, who's a professor there, is doing a talk titled, Should We Be Concerned About the Use of Human Enhancement Drugs? There is also stuff about air pollution, the sort about stuff about preservation and recycling and the biggest sort of theme will be reassessing the value of knowledge in the post-pandemic world and the kind of recovery from that it's an absolute scandal that they haven't asked us to speak at that what is going on with the organization of that um that sounds really interesting that's all for this week's episode of the manchester weekly from the mail as always if you like our journalism and you want to support it please do become a paying member we've got 1350 of them now i think we had a bit of a boost after i went on radio 4 last week on you and yours but if you yeah if you like what we do if you'd like to hear more of it members get two extra editions in their inbox every week they get to come to our events and they get to comment under our stories and that kind of thing and they get to feel like they're patrons of a of a new type of journalism so um, join up at manchestermail.co.uk if you want to do that and we will see you on Sunday with a special episode interviewing Vaughan Allen who is the head of Citico he's the head of the business improvement district he's the sort of leading mind about Manchester City Centre and how it's changing and which kind of businesses are there he gave us a really interesting interview about that so download that on Sunday and a special request from us if you love this podcast, or even if you moderately like this podcast, please give us a rating. You can give us a rating on Apple. You can give us a rating on Spotify now and a, and a little comment as well. And please do share us down a WhatsApp you know, group with a few people who, who like podcasts or any friends who listen to podcasts. We've got a growing audience now. It'd be great to double down on that. Jack, thank you very much for being on the podcast. No problem. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>